Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ask a Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our podcasting team, and joining me, as always, is Dr. Jesse Noose. Thank you for having me back. So today, I was thinking we could talk about plague. Awesome. Topical. Yes, it's been on my mind lately for for some reason. Yes. So the plague, um, when we talk about the Middle Ages plague, what disease are we actually talking about here? Yes. So the plague is actually one of those great moments in history because there have been a lot of plagues, by which we mean just disease, pestilence, right? And obviously, since before written records, since before the evolution of human beings. Pestilence has been killing creatures, living creatures of all kinds, right? Plants, animals. And at this point, the past sort of almost 200 years, but not quite, what, 150, 60? There has been the slow realization, first of all, that you can recognize a bacteria or a virus. (laughs) And not only that, but historically, that even though it is rare um, because they they're living. They die the way everything else does. If you find corpses buried in certain ways where certain tissues or things have been preserved, it is possible to figure out what those people died from and to essentially sort of resequence the DNA um, of the bacteria, for example, and figure out what it was. And so this is actually fairly recent, within about the past 20 years, that the history of what has become the plague, because not all plagues, of course, are the plague. There's lots of plagues. Leprosy is one of the big ones that we also know about, of course. Mm-hmm. Cholera has been a huge one. Still is. Oh, smallpox. Yes, absolutely. Right? Um, and so a lot of these have famously killed many, many, many people. And because in the sort of late 19th century, bubonic plague, what is now called bubonic plague, or Y. pestis, Yersinia pestis, it was named pestis, of course, for plague. I mean, this it was named on the assumption, essentially, that it was the ultimate plague. That when people said the plague, they meant this specific disease. And it was known because although obviously only recently, past few hundred years, have we managed to first of all figure out germs, bacteria, what a virus is, and famously ideas of sort of right sterilization, wash your hands, all of these things come up in the 1800s. I think, I don't know if we mentioned this before, but um, Google had a great doodle to the man who sort of encouraged everyone to wash their hands. Oh yeah. And he had an incredibly tragic story. I did see that. He was a um, Hungarian doctor, wasn't he? Ignat Semmelweis. Yeah, and he had this really, really tragic story. He essentially tried to convince everyone they should wash their hands. He figured out scientific method. There were two hospitals, and they both delivered babies. And the one that was midwives only, people tended to live. And his hospital had a horrific death rate. And he realized at some point the only difference was that doctors also did autopsies. And a friend of his was actually sort of stabbed mistakenly. I mean, you know, cut with a scalpel (laughs) mistakenly during um, an autopsy or a round one and ended up dying. And his autopsy was very similar to the women who also died at this hospital after childbirth. Hmm. And so Semmelweis sort of said, well, maybe there's a connection, right? He 
this is the only thing that's different is doctors do autopsies, midwives don't. You know, my friend who was this doctor died after being sort of cut with the scalpel from an autopsy with the same symptoms in his autopsy as the women who died, right, in this hospital. There's something about dead bodies <laughs> that is doing this. He and germs, you know, he didn't really have a germ theory yet. It didn't exist yet. So he... It's like 1847, we're talking. Yes, that's when he like figured very... it out. The early Victorian yeah. sort of... And, of course, yeah. later, like, Pasteur and Lister will come along and they'll get germ theory and they'll convince everybody. And it's not mm -hmm. actually that far away. It's a couple decades away. But, you know, it hasn't happened yet. And he calls them cadaverous particles. And just realizes, he creates this solution that if you wash your hands in it enough, um, your hands will stop smelling of cadavers. And so he assumes that there's some something he can't see. This cadaverous particle... <laughs> that if he washes his hands, the solution disappears, right? And you know because you can't smell it. Mm -hmm. And this is something we'll talk about for the Middle Ages as well, the connection between smell and the idea of sort of corruption or pollution and disease. Mm. Uh, and of course, he was right, obviously. He was very, very right. Um, and he started forcing everyone to wash their hands, and their death rate dropped to the same as the midwife hospital. But then he couldn't convince anyone else. And he wrote letters, and he ended up getting fired. And for the next sort of almost 20 years, he goes on this rant. He sort of accuses doctors of being murderers for being unwilling to try his treatment. And he ends up... Right. I mean, it, hmm? it's weird, because you think, how hard could it be to just, like, work this into your routine? Exactly. Right. But it's a reminder of some ways how skeptical, in terrible ways, people can be, especially when it comes mm -hmm. to science. We trust it on the one hand. We think of it as factual and logical. And on the other hand... There can be mountains of evidence staring us in the face, and we don't want to change what we believe. And that's sort of the ultimate problem. Doctors not wanting to believe that this was their fault or that something as simple as washing their hands would change it. And so I think his wife actually ends up having him committed to an asylum, and he's beaten badly uh -oh. and dies of sepsis within a couple weeks, which is horrific. And of course, sepsis is the very thing he was trying to avoid all his life. Yeah. And it may have been from the beating. It's not entirely clear, but... So this sort of horrible story, what happened to him. And within, you know, a few years after his death, basically his theory will have been proven. Right? And people will start mm -hmm. to take it seriously. But this, but essentially, right, this happens. And then the plague, the plague, right, pestis, they all, they all come around a lot. They don't go away. Yes. Um, only in the modern era, right, as of, what, a couple decades have we finally eradicated one disease, smallpox. Yeah. Well, we're working on polio. I mean, like there was even outbreaks of plague up in the the early 1900s in San Francisco. Yeah. Oh, you can still catch it. There's still parts of the world where it exists. Yeah. Absolutely. But that was exactly the problem. In the late 1900s, there was another sort of outbreak. And at this point, right, scientists, they know what they're looking for. They find it. They isolate it. They name it. And they assume that it's, they call it, right, plague, pestis, right? This is the mm -hmm. plague. <laughs> they assume it's the plague, the one that history has sort of famously discussed. And the reason is they recognize the symptoms. So we call it the bubonic plague because of the swellings by the lymph nodes, which are one of the symptoms. But there are three types, basically, right? There's that one. There's one that goes through your bloodstream that is really horrific and almost entirely fatal. And then pneumonic, the lungs. Mm -hmm. Which is also not great. I think what I've read is the death rate of the plague is something in the 80 to 95 percent range. Well, it's unclear. Depending on, depending the, form. on the form. The For blood, right, septicemic, that's possible. Yeah, that's possible. But really, um, the Middle Ages did 
record between 80 and 90 percent we think that for them it was more it was actually about half Mm -hmm. roughly 50 percent which is still horrific and if if that many people actually died you can imagine that people would say it felt like 90 percent or even 80 percent i mean that's yeah astonishing right but that's actually this big problem when scientists found it and recognized it and realized it was still around then suddenly a different conversation started. And that conversation went something like, if this disease is still around, why doesn't it kill everybody? (laughs) Right? Yeah. Um, Which is to say, there are these two incredibly famous outbreaks in history, one of them at the very beginning of the Middle Ages, as we discussed last time, Mm -hmm. Um, even though here we are in the 19th century talking about finding the plague. The 19th century, of course, is where the term medieval becomes really the term for this period, and also the term Renaissance, right? All of these terms that show up that we now use. But for this period that <laughs> um, mm-hmm. had kind of been, right, the period that does become known as the Renaissance is kind of propagandized out of commission. And so looking back at this period, at the very beginning, what has become known as the Justinian Plague, and then famously, the sort of 1347 to 1349 plague. Um... And the assumption that these were the bubonic plague, because that is what is described. It So even though prior to sort of the 19th century, germ theory, a lot of these things wasn't well understood, wasn't clear, right? Um, how to isolate a virus wasn't known. The Middle Ages were fantastic at case histories. This is true also of the classical world. So descriptions of how people reacted to diseases, they tended to be very good at, and More interestingly, in some ways, the recognition of the fact, for example, that different things could be the same disease. So they recognized that the pneumonic and bubonic forms were the same disease Hmm. and that people reacted differently and also that certain forms were more deadly. These were all things that they recognized. They recognized the fact that this was probably tied to um, the death of, for example, household pets. Which, again, is something that isn't true today. Ah, yes. Cats and dogs, for example, tend to be resistant to the plague today, but were not in Europe in the Middle Ages. Huh. Yeah. And so there, there are enough differences in some ways between the way it reacted back then and the way it reacted now, the way it reacts now, <clears throat> that a lot of scholars start to sort of question if maybe it wasn't a different disease altogether. And so there was this sort of interesting, um, I don't know, sideline <laughs> in medical history of historians suggesting other diseases that it could have been and why. And ultimately, (laughs) of course, finally, as I said, within the past couple decades, they proved that it was the plague. Mm -hmm. They have isolated it, both for Justinian and for uh, the 13, sort of, 48 outbreak. Um, But it was this sort of point of contention. And once they proved, beyond a shadow of a doubt, um, that that is what it was, that it was the plague, now they have to sort of go back and figure out why it may have behaved differently. But of course, that's what medical histories do. Things do behave differently, right? Smallpox existed in Europe. Mm -hmm. It gets brought to the New World, and it behaves the way the Black Death did in Europe, right? It's introduced to a new place. There is no herd immunity, right? And it just runs rampant. Mm -hmm. And so in a lot of ways, this is what happened. And it's why the Justinian Plague, even though it starts, basically, right, with Justinian, 
So the sort of 540s. Ah, yes. This is like right after the fall of the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess yeah. he was the... It started in the Eastern... Yes. Byzantine. Roman Empire. So it's not like the Roman Empire... Right. Totally collapsed, but... Well, famously, right? The Byzantine aspect of the Roman Empire lasts through the high middle ages yeah yes i think that's also something i remember from uh europa universalis <laughs> yeah absolutely actually you're right <laughs> that is yeah that is in there yeah so that that happens sort of i mean you have the big outbreak that kills lots and lots of people but it is also recurring for the next couple hundred years mm-hmm. and they tend to sort of list it i think somewhere in the 700s and they just consider that all one outbreak yes and that's really key to how plague works. Uh, and I want to give a sort of reference here, a reference point to Monica Green. And we'll probably list a lot of her work in the notes. Um, because she is sort of the foremost medievalist plague expert. And this is, and she's published also some collections with other people thinking about the Justinian plague compared to sort of the Black Death that comes along in the 1300s, and also looking at the ways in which it sort of reacted differently, and the ways in which we might explain the differences between those outbreaks and sort of what happened later. And in some ways, the fact that, right, this one outbreak that sort of recurs, and then it stops, and that essentially, what happens is, right, after a first outbreak, where a community or population is not ready for it Um, and it just runs through killing people recurrences tend to be less deadly Mm -hmm. right some people have survived you start to have things like herd immunity and essentially that's how you sort of measure that sense of where does the outbreak end so people notice when it comes back it's still dangerous it's still a terrible disease but it's less deadly and so essentially people note outbreaks you know, for the next couple hundred years, and then it sort of goes away. And it's not entirely clear why. This is one of the things people work on. But that break in time, what, it's about 600 years, obviously is why when it came back in the 1300s, it was so deadly again. So all the, all the herd immunity had kind of yeah, gone. Yeah, everything, right? Even the animals, right, who now are resistant weren't. No one was resistant, right? Mm-hmm. And so then... Essentially, what happens is (laughs) the recurring outbreaks, it never really went away again after the 1300s. So it continues to come back. There are a lot of memes Mm -hmm. right now that everyone's quarantined inside about the plays that Shakespeare wrote when the theaters were closed. Yes. Um, Newton did his work on uh, gravitation while the, the universities were closed in 1665. Yep. But, you know, for them, that was fairly common. Mm-hmm. You know, theaters regularly closed in the summer for plague because that's when it comes around, right? The weather's warm and the rats and the fleas are out and it was very common. And so everyone went, you know, companies would go off and tour Europe or whatever. It was just something people lived with, mm-hmm. the sort of assumption, right? And even when it's not the plague. So if you think of the rich leave London in the summer, right? Mm-hmm. The season is in the winter, all the way through Jane Austen. Um, And that's, of course, people think, well, it's smelly. It's all of these things. Yes, but that was also associated with disease. And rightfully so, right? Cholera outbreaks, all of this stuff. Dysentery. Mm Mm-hmm. What were the other ones? There's a lot of... There's a lot of them. (laughs) There's a lot of city diseases. Diphtheria. Yes. Typhoid. Yeah. So all of these things, right? And so the sort of recurrence of disease 
it's seasonal, people get used to it, but it never quite goes away again. And so this is something else that has been tapped, both for the Justinian and for the 1340, I'm going to say 48, because that's sort of smack when it hits Europe. But, you know, 1347 through 4950. You get this great moment where globalization essentially spreads these diseases in ways that they hadn't been spread before, Mm -hmm. right? And so we talked a little bit about the Dark Ages, Last time, and I said, you know, Dark Ages, it's not a great term because it implies a lot of things that aren't true. Right. But in fairness to the fact that there was sort of some collapse of governments and systems and a lot of areas of Europe that weren't necessarily talking to each other at the moment, Mm -hmm. this is probably one of the reasons why the Justinian Plague didn't ultimately do as much damage as it could have. I mean, it was Mm -hmm. dreadful. It was absolutely horrific. So it sort of stuck around like the Mediterranean, Constantinople yes. type of area. Yes, and it killed millions of people, but it could have spread the globe. And it didn't because that, right, this was a point in time when that wasn't quite possible. Right. If it had come, if it had come you know, a couple hundred of years earlier when the Romans were still really doing their Roman Empire thing and sending people as far as France and... London and whatever, it seems like it might have been a different story. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, And that, absolutely, the Romans would have taken it straight to England, right? Yeah. And not to mention France and Germany. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Right? And that's essentially what happens. And so globalization is really one of those aspects. And it explains, again, right? Modern colonization spread a lot of diseases and was horrifically destructive globalization right suddenly all of these things go everywhere people who didn't have them before suddenly have them and be but globalization also speaks to why the plague didn't go away again Mm -hmm. because in some ways again justinian right it sort of burns through the population um, but then there's enough sort of separation of things it doesn't quite spread it eventually it goes away it takes a while it goes away but after 1348 it's just sort of around there's no more dark ages yeah it's just around (laughs) like i think I think the second pandemic, technically, the uh, outbreaks in the 1600s were still part of that outbreak. Yeah. Um, and they they do get listed as sort of the second or the third, but they are sort of more as recurrences a little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is obviously different. But it does lend itself to the fact that, first of all, sort of interestingly, the plague is probably younger than people thought it was originally. So, for example, that it may have originated around three to 4,000 years ago, which is a very long time by our standards. Okay, yeah. But definitely not by the standards of something like a bacteria or a virus, right? A lot of diseases have been around much longer than that. We've been around much longer than that. I mean, people have been around, you know, what, 300,000, 350,000 years. So the idea that... I mean, three to... 4,000 years ago, not, you don't, not like 4,000 BC, but 4,000 years right. ago. It's like 2,000. I mean, Egypt already had, that was already like the middle kingdom of Egypt. Yep. Like they had already been doing their thing for so long that they were, you know, absolutely into the middle part of it. Yeah. You have the rise <laughs> so. of, you know, sort of what's going to become Greek civilization, right? Of course, the mm-hmm. Cycladic Islands are doing all their stuff, sort of the if you get the rise of sort of Mycenaean. Yeah, it's very modern. That is prime civilization time. Yeah. Yeah, it's very modern by even by human standards. This is sort of the history that we all kind of know about or the history we feel connected to. 
Yeah, you can still see the buildings and the statues and, you know, we still care. So the idea that it's that that's about when it showed up, right? It's it's actually very new. And this is again very recent work. Mm-hmm. And it seems to have shown up in wild rats in Asia, which is of course in fleas, but the rats carry the fleas, right? But it doesn't have to be rats. They're just sort of the best vector, I guess. Sure. And this is another aspect. In theory, rats get very close to people, right? Because they're interested in garbage. I mean, I assume wild rats are also interested in garbage. Presumably. I mean, but that's sort of the thing, that for a long time, um, it didn't get to people at all because they weren't getting near people, (laughs) right? And then it's unclear a little bit for Justinian, but possibly similar, right? So then you start to rely on sort of events. Um, And were there sort of various natural disasters that may have like sort of floods or there were theories of earthquakes. This happens also for 1348. The sorts of things, uh, famine, right? Fires, maybe famine. The sort of thing that would have driven wild rats towards people, essentially, right? That would have driven them into sort of cities or into... um, places where people had settled, even if they were ordinarily fairly far away from people. And that that seems to have been sort of the driver, right? So they didn't ordinarily have a chance to mingle with people, but they were sort of driven. And so from there, the spread. And one of the possibilities, actually, because we brought them up last time, so might as well bring them up again. One of the possibilities is that Khan, the various, right? Genghis, Kubla, (laughs) and the hordes. Yeah. That them sweeping through and causing destruction (laughs) may have been one of the things that sort of helped this along, actually, and helped drive some of the destruction that sort of drove the rats into people. And that they themselves sort of moving through all this territory may also have been one of the things that carried the fleas along these routes. Hmm. And so then, of course, into sort of the Middle East. um, And then once it got there, right, it just spread. And in 1348... This is what happened, you know, in January. Planes and ships. They didn't have planes, but they had ships. The striking thing to me in some ways is the fact that the cruise ship that arrived, right? It was stuck in Japan. Oh, yes. The plague ship. They didn't quarantine it properly there. Yeah, and then here. This this exact sort of scenario did absolutely unfold in the Middle Ages. So you have this completely... <laughs> bizarrely parallel event not cruise ships so much of course more like merchant um, ships economic yes merchant ships but that same idea right and you have first of all they go to certain areas they find out the plague is there the first thing everyone does is run home and so everyone sure hops on a plane or in this case a boat everyone runs home so suddenly the ships right and when the ship got here no one wants to let it dock This is also absolutely true. Europe knows this is coming, right? Mm -hmm. And so they don't really understand, like, how it could reach them, but they know that it's moving through populations. Like, as these people travel, they don't know that they're carrying fleas or that they might... Oh, they they don't know it's fleas, but they absolutely know... They don't know that the fleas have a virus, but they, they may know that the the sickness is accompanying them in some way. Yes. They absolutely know that people are bringing it. Contagion is something the Middle Ages understands. They don't know how it works, but they know they know it's there. Mm-hmm. And actually, this is sort of a brilliant thing I was talking about with a friend. The ways they tried to conjure up contagion 
or understand it, and sometimes weren't that far off. They don't know that there are invisible germs and bacteria and so on. They're not invisible, of course. They're just too small to be seen by the human eye. But the idea that there is something right. that is invisible, right? That they knew there was something you couldn't see that was doing this. And the question is what? So smell was a big one, right? Um, is there something poisonous vapors? Something mixing with the air? Mm -hmm. So in times of disease, the Middle Ages is no exception. It's the time when you start to work on your, like, garbage skills, basically, right? Garbage removal. It's sort of where the London sewer comes from. Much later, <laughs> right? Um, again, we're talking sort of 1800s. Oh. But the idea that it would remove the smell. Right. Now, of course, it did. But what removed the actual disease, like cholera, wasn't, of course, the removal of the smell, but all the stuff that causes the smell, right? But the thing was... They just couldn't figure out how the rotting garbage, which was clearly causing disease, how that got to you. If you never went to it, how is it getting to you? <laughs> well, smell. Right. So that's why you see, for example, the long, beaky, famous Doctor of the Plague masks. Sure. Right? It was to mask the smell. Oh, yeah. Or people would be told to keep something sweet-smelling with them when they left the house. You should wear a mask. You actually should wear a mask, not because they understood the way we understand contagion, but because of the smell. And you would put something sweet-smelling in your mask, um, and then, theoretically, the, you wouldn't mm -hmm. smell the terrible smell that contagion wouldn't get to you. Now, there are, kind, there are particles moving through there. I mean, they're sort of right. They just didn't know how to stop it, and they didn't quite know what it was. Right? Right. But um, another brilliant thing, they thought maybe things got in through the eyes, right? So the nose, the eyes... This is all true, right? Don't okay. cut your face. Don't rub your eyes. You know. But for them, again, they didn't quite understand how it worked. It's like looking at things, right? Like, I remember hearing theories about if a woman saw something when she was pregnant, it could affect the baby. Yes, I love this Like, one. you know, if you accidentally yes. saw rabbits, it could make you give birth to a rabbit or something. Yes. The best one, of course, is how, you know, it could explain how a woman gave birth to a baby that looked like her neighbor or something like that, right? <laughs> yes. Um, ah, yes. Yeah. Or a woman who was clearly one race giving birth to a baby who was clearly maybe mixed race. Um, it was because she saw a picture. She was yeah. just <laughs> looking at the wrong thing, yes. Yeah, those are brilliant. But absolutely, that's exactly the idea, right? And they thought it imprinted itself on sort of the shapeless mass that was the baby. So this sense... If you think of the basilisk, mm -hmm. who we all know because of J.K. Rowling. Right. It's um, stared at you, turned yep. you to stone. Yes. Basilisk. So the gaze of the basilisk. Um, that's also Shakespeare also has in Winter's Tale, which you have me cited like the basilisk. So that idea that there's a contagion, right, from eye to eye, contagion. Mm -hmm. And the basilisk actually ends up being really important. We'll come back to him. Um, but... That idea that somehow there is this way clearly in which contagion gets into the body that you don't know. How do you stop it? So ships showing up, mm -hmm. they would be stopped in harbors. Frequently, they wouldn't be allowed on land. Um, sometimes the stuff wouldn't either, which was brilliant. Sometimes, unfortunately, they might unload some stuff. That's such a good idea. But there was an interesting case. Um, obviously, it didn't help. But where certain, the goods might have been unloaded, but then no one would buy them. Right? Hmm. So that happened occasionally. The problem was, of course, that people were right, 
but it didn't matter anymore, right? Once you've unloaded something that might have the rats or fleas on it, it's too late, right? Right. But essentially, this is one of the things about Europe knows it's coming. So at first, they see it moving through what, of course, they call pagan lands. So we've got, of course, Asia, <laughs> and then all of the Muslim territories mm-hmm. moving in towards Europe. They know it's coming. The ships, the ship that gets tagged usually is one that sort of left and landed in Genoa. But there are probably a few that left and got to various places in Italy. Again, Italy, right? Everyone runs to Italy. It's sort of the center of where you go in Europe, obviously in the Middle Ages, right? I don't blame them. Yeah. Nice pastries. <laughs> nice and place. And so you have this um, really interesting sense. I mean, the, the perils in some ways to what have just happened with COVID-19 are kind of uncanny because of the idea that it starts in sort of the same place, right? And the way it wins its way through. Um, and so then the ships, right? Mm-hmm. So we had the ship. We don't want to let it dock. You don't want to let those people off. Um, this happens throughout Europe, but definitely the ports in Italy, and then from there, everywhere, right? And so in England, you know, there was some conversation about, did it come first, like Southampton, London, or where? Probably a few ports at once at that point. But basically, Europe sees it coming, right? They're tracking it, and they know that they know it's coming on these ships, but you sort of also can't stop it. The same way you can't say to people, like, you can't go home. <laughs> You sort of can, but you also can't. And you can't really stop people. Right. You can try. But in the end, you know. But they see it coming. And there are stories um, that people tell sort of after the fact. But, for example, that um, the king of Tarsus, I think, which of course is on the coast of Turkey, what is now Turkey, thinks that maybe this is God's punishment against people who aren't Christian, so he starts to sort of make a pilgrimage to Rome, but by the time he starts to get towards Italy, he realizes that Italy's already got it, so he just turns around and goes home. <laughs> Which was also a reminder for the Middle Ages that even though they kind of, definitely, another thing we'll come around back to, mm-hmm. that they definitely had a sense of it being sort of God's anger for sin, that at the same time, <laughs> first of all, that definitely doesn't rule out physical causes, right? Because God creates the world. And so, right. This isn't like this isn't like a magical plague, like um, the exactly. dying of the firstborn right. in you know the the Mosianic right. plagues. Like this is some they can tell that something yes. else is going yes. on besides. And so it's that. sort of as though you know God sent this thing, and if if you were smart enough or holy enough or something, you might figure it out or be able to stop it. But otherwise, probably not. Mm-hmm. But what happens then is that you have this sense on the one hand that maybe it is right sort of the sins of everyone being visited on them but at the same time it's clearly not just about christianity because everyone's got it so but also christians have it Mm -hmm. right so everyone has it is that about those who aren't christian christians also have it so there is this also very interesting way in which different people negotiate that very differently some people just assume it shows like how unchristian christians have become but some people do take a kind of different tack, that it's more about the ways in which humanity is clearly failing. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about this. Like, how, how do they react when it shows up? Ooh, yes. So <laughs> there are a lot of great things. One of them, so I said... Are we using a qualified kind yes. of great here? Like a quotation mark great? Well... Like, historically exciting, <laughs> but maybe very bad for the people involved 
kind of great. Well, some of them are very bad for the people involved. But some of these things are kind of fascinating. I mean, it depends, right? So I said that, um, right, that modern science has figured out that it really was the plague. Mm -hmm. And that Justinian and the Black Death were both the plague, which is called plague, right? Why pestis? And it's the bubonic plague. And the ways in which sort of modern science has tried to deal with um, how it changed. First of all, of course, this could have been a particularly virulent strain. Mm -hmm. um, and again, the fact that it hadn't been around for sort of 600 years explains the rise of globalization explains. There are a lot of ways to explain why it affected them differently at these two periods than it did and sort of continues to do today. Right. That being said, when a new disease gets let loose, as we now know, it spreads through, right? Or the flu in 1918. The flu had been around before. It's been around since. That was a virulent strain. So it's, of course, right, the fact that diseases work this way isn't surprising. Mm -hmm. But in some ways, modern scholars looking back um, have messed around with things occasionally. So you have this weird way in which, for a while, modern scholars didn't want to believe anything the Middle Ages said about the disease. They just figured they're all sort of exaggerating. And then slowly but surely, as they figured out it was the plague, and as you get more and more evidence of, you know, well, if you have this many bodies in this area, that probably means that X number of people died out of the population, right? So Yeah. Um, and they basically start to revise these numbers back up, which is why we have reached the sort of point of 50, maybe in some cases, 60% of people which honestly isn't that far off from that 80%, right? Wow. So there is, it is this dreadful, dreadful disease. But the responses that show up are really fascinating in a lot of ways. Some of them, right, so the sort of rise of scientific inquiry, it's not the rise, I mean, scientific inquiry has been around forever. But <laughs> uh, the Middle Ages really has some fantastic scientists um, in a lot of ways. And as I said, it, the idea that it was sin absolutely did not preclude the idea that science could help you out. So you have um, people looking for the scientific reasons. Mm -hmm. And as I said, right, the corruption of the air for various possibilities. Um, so rubbish, right? Cleaning up your rubbish <laughs> and trying to figure out how that might be mm -hmm. affecting. But also you have definitely the sense, right, that um, as people always know, that those who visit the sick are probably going to get it themselves. The clergy, who of course are supposed to be visiting and ministering to the sick, are probably going to get it themselves. Mm -hmm. Trying to figure out why this happens. So you get, you do have an influx of sort of medical and scientific uh, manuals about this and what to do and how to treat it. And ultimately, one of the things that medicine does for centuries before you get to the modern era where we know that antibiotics work, we know that vaccines work, is you have essentially these manuals on how to care for people, which is important. Yeah. But you also have doctors thinking about treatments and doctors across different traditions, even, sort of sharing knowledge. So Christian doctor, Jewish doctor, Muslim doctor, mm -hmm. reading each other's sort of works. And that is also something that happens sort of throughout the Middle Ages, but that this is one of those moments where a lot of those things cross over. Um, and a friend who works on sort of relations between Jews and Muslims and Christians in Europe um, has discussed generally the ways in which there would be questions, you know, if, if you're Christian and the best doctor in your town is Jewish, like, what does it mean to go to that doctor? Are you not trusting God? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. right? The services are you not trusting 
your treatment to God because you're going to a doctor who isn't the same religion, right? And is that sort of heretical or something? But this was a sort of interesting, you know, moment for a lot of those things. So those are some of the good things um, that happen. Uh, you have also astrology as a science, of course, at the time. This is what becomes astronomy. Um, and again, some tremendous astronomers in the Middle Ages, obviously. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the Middle Ages, you know, we get Copernicus and Galileo, <laughs> who are obviously yes. excellent astronomers. Uh, but you do have excellent astronomers. It's just that astronomy also tends to be filled with other things, which we now call astrology. Um, but one of the interesting things that happens is there's this conjunction of three sort of planets, stars, in March of 1348. And a lot of scientists at the time think that that is a warning, essentially. Hmm. Um, And possibly the cause, right? But if not the cause, at least a warning of what's coming. Um, Which, of course, you know, ends up being sort of terrible. That sense. So you you find a lot of that. You do also then get some, there's a, the most famous, there's a lot of famous reactions, right? People who lived at the time writing about it, obviously. So Petrarch, uh, who I think is in Parma at the time, he finds out that the woman, right, Laura, that he wrote all his poems about, basically, right? The sort mm-hmm. of unreachable woman. But she was a real person, also. <laughs> and oh. um, she she died of the plague, as did many others. So you have him writing about that. Did I see that the Decameron kind of yes came out of this? Hundred percent. Uh, yeah, yeah. Boccaccio's Decameron, which is he yeah. lives through the plague in Florence and then writes this Decameron. So, um, ten days of stories. It's again right. If you're rich, you leave the city, mm-hmm. which is ostensibly the point of contagion, right? So you leave the city. You go out into the country where there's nobody around. They understood quarantine. Quarantine. It's the 40 days. Right. Right. 40 <laughs> days from, from the Italian, right? Yeah. So you head out. Um, I mean, and of course it comes, right, 40 days in the desert. Mm-hmm. 40 years in the desert, of course. The wanderings, right, <laughs> for Moses. Um, but the 40 days, you know, for Jesus. So this idea is is around. Mm-hmm. But that sense, right, that you, yeah. You sort of do this. And so this, you know, rich group of friends, young, you know, men and women, um, head out to a villa outside Florence, uh, Fiesley, and stay there for two weeks. They figure that that's enough. <laughs> um, and they, t- ten days, everyone tells a story. Ten story. Anyway, so there are a hundred stories. Ten people, ten days. Yeah, so a Canterbury Tale type of situation. Yes, I wonder where Chaucer got this idea. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, Chaucer got a lot of his stuff from Boccaccio. And also some of the stories. I mean, some of the stories Boccaccio tells, Chaucer uses. But they're waiting out the plague, and there is a description of it. Uh, Boccaccio, I mean, it's a very straightforward description. This, I mean, Boccaccio saw it. He was there, he saw it. And he's like, this is what happened, and this is how people died. So the Decameron, absolutely, right? One of the sort of most famous medieval stories. Mm-hmm. And then Chaucer himself, of course, references it. For him, it's not the cause so much of Canterbury Tales, although pilgrimage mm-hmm. is definitely a response, right? 
go on pilgrimage to try and cleanse your sins to hope that you live, or if you don't live, at least that you'll go to heaven when you die. Mm-hmm. And pilgrimage is encouraged. Uh, Pope Clement the Sixth declares 1350 a jubilee year, which means if you go to Rome, you will get a plenary indulgence, which is a full remit for all your sins. Everything. So that is definitely one of the um, possible ways to try and either, as I said, avoid it or at least make sure that you will go to heaven. Yeah, I mean, I can't I can't put the face that I'm making on the recording, but it feels like traveling to Rome during the middle of a plague outbreak is maybe not the most amazing idea. Although (laughs) I guess I can see the logic of, you know, people are dying, we have to do something type of situation. Right. Well, and again, it's the sort of thing where people knew you could get it from other people, but the sense that a large crowd was automatically dangerous wasn't necessarily obvious. Right. Right. For example, that a large crowd in church would do good. And in fact, here in the U.S., um, there are places where church services have continued to happen in person or have not been specifically shut down or have been given exemptions which stems in many ways from that same feeling even though we absolutely know and Pope Francis has said right that if you're Catholic that hearing mass over you know the internet even though you can't actually be there right you can't actually take communion that it, it for now that it is the equivalent Right, that you are, it is if you have done it, basically. Right, mm-hmm. he is a pope who believes in climate change. There's a very interesting, maybe maybe, very sidetracking, but um, in Richard Feynman's autobiography, right, um, he talks about growing up in a very Jewish area where they would have like a Shabbos goy yes. who pushed the buttons in the elevator. Yep, and he talks about this question of like, is electricity fire? Because you're forbidden to make fire on the Sabbath. And so now I feel like there have been questions about, is it okay to join a minion? Um, right. For those not familiar with Judaism, you have a minion is like the number of people you need to hold services. So is it okay to join a minion over Zoom? Right. Which for me comes back to that same question of like, is making electricity right. the same as making fire? Also, like you can put your lights on timers. So presumably, yes. you know, you could leave your Zoom session on. And just be there all weekend. Yes. What if your internet, like, cuts out? Well, can you, like, have your computer automatically, like, rejoin or something? (laughs) Right? But I think the same thing applies, right? That in Judaism, you know, anything to save a life or, you know, there's certain things like that. So in this instance that you, you do it, right? Or there have been pictures of, you know, Williamsburg, New York, the section of New York, of Minion you know, a minion with everyone, like, six feet apart. <laughs> you know? Yes. So they're, like, basically in the courtyard and, every, you know, and they're lined up and they're the six feet and that's... Mm-hmm. So that sort of thing. People do try to adapt, yeah. I guess. But that is, you know, but that's a sort of similar idea in some ways to what the Middle Ages is thinking, right? That a pilgrimage, at least it's for the right reasons, sort of. Mm-hmm. And by 1350, you know, it's calming down a little bit. So... It was also very much a sense of um, the world could end. I mean, this is something else that happens, right? So this is sort of the the other side. So pilgrimages are encouraged. Masses are encouraged. They're specific masses. And actually, 
very famously the idea of a mass as being a response um, comes does come even from the Justinian plague essentially 590 in Rome ravaged by plague uh, Gregory <laughs> sort of the most famous pope probably um, led a procession and created he created his own sort of liturgy that he chanted during this procession that then becomes a liturgy that people chant in processions particularly during times of plague mm -hmm. um, and so it's specifically referenced you know in the middle 1300s so hundreds of years later there are people specifically processing right clergy leading processions like gregory with that liturgy that is very specific to plague that is seen as very specific to plague um and supposedly this is in the golden legend so the sort of famous series of medieval <laughs> stories saints lives right all of these sorts of things that are put out in the golden legend and one of them pertains to this procession that gregory leads um and supposedly at the end the archangel michael appeared on the top of hadrian's mausoleum sheathing his sword which was a sign that god's anger had been appeased so you know you think of Michael and his sword, of course, he fights Satan with his sword, um, the sort of, you know, the flaming sword that could be seen as bringing destruction as well as cure. So he's seen as sheathing his sword, right? So God's anger has been appeased, um, and it's supposedly this is why then the mausoleum is renamed the Castle St. Angelo, which is what it's known as today. Hmm. So the golden legend is sort of, you know, one of the places this story shows up. Uh, but even in England, you know, in the 1300s, during the plague um the bishop of winchester is one of the people who sort of recreates this procession right so processions masses pilgrimages are all seen as very important but there also are responses um some italian cities create fraternities that are specifically dedicated to burying victims of the plague mm -hmm. this is something else we see today right there you can't sort of have funerals um first of all because of how many people are sick but also because it's dangerous to have them, which they also definitely knew at the time, you know, um, that a dead body could be contagious. And so what do you do? Basically, special citizens groups were created to bury the bodies. Um, and there were a lot of rumors. This goes back to sort of propaganda and various things. Um, modern scholars thought in a lot of cases there might have been just big pits of bodies that were sort of thrown in. But actually, when people have found a lot of the sort of plague pits... Um, they're very carefully laid out. They're respectful, which is evidence that even in the midst of all of this, um, as with today, there's sort of this sense of these mass graves occurring in some areas of the world, like Italy and China, but very sort of respectfully and carefully laid out um, so that the Middle Ages, you know, same thing, obviously, right? You do what you can. Mm -hmm. So that's another sort of element of um, the sort of you help, you help where you can, right? Um, so I want to bring out a couple other things. This is one of the f most famous, um, the, one of the most famous records comes from Ireland. The plague arrives in 1348, um, and John Clinn, who's a Franciscan friar, and who apparently did die after writing this in his chronicle that he's keeping, wrote, <laughs> this is a quote, a lot of the primary sources, we'll reference this on the website, are from Rosemary Horrocks's um, primary source book on the Black Death, where she just translates a lot of this stuff. It's brilliant. But anyhow, so he writes... 
Um, I, Brother John Clinn of the Friars Minor, meaning the Franciscans of Kilkenny, have written in this book the notable events which befell in my time, which I saw for myself or have learnt from men worthy of belief, so that notable deeds should not perish with time and be lost from the memory of future generations. I, seeing these many ills, and that the whole world is encompassed by evil, waiting among the dead for death to come, have committed to writing what I have truly heard and examined, and so that the writing does not perish with the writer, or the work fail with the workman. I leave parchment for continuing the work, in case anyone should still be alive in the future, and any son of Adam can escape this pestilence and continue the work thus begun. All right. Wow. Yeah. And that became symbolic. His sense, everyone around him has died. The world might be over. And that became really symbolic of the way um, the Middle Ages felt about this moment. But it also became symbolic of the ways in which later scholars looking back um, kind of unfairly thought that these people were exaggerating and maybe being a bit emotional. Yeah. (laughs) And really kind of took this the wrong way, you know. Um, and people have gone back now and taken it much more seriously. But that sense of what was happening. What kind of surprises me is like in um, so in the twentieth century, right? You get H.P. Lovecraft writing these characters who have su- accidentally summoned an evil from beyond. Yes. You know, and they're writing. Oh no, I do not. You know, know how to undo what I have done, and it is even now upon the stair and bursting through the door. And you keep thinking as you're reading it, like, well, you could put down the pen and maybe run away, but right. it feels like hearing this that people actually do kind of want to do that. Right. Like, that is somehow like a very human impulse to just keep on writing up until the moment when, right. you know, you, that's, that's it. You just keep on writing. Well, you have to leave a record yeah. so that people know. Right. And also, it should be pointed out, um, this is a very, very, very human effort. I mean, Hamlet, at the end of Hamlet, right? Mm -hmm. Horatio needs to live so he can tell the story. But there's also that sense that, um, we might talk about this in a future episode, but the Middle Ages has a very important sense of Jesus as a workman, right? And that when he, at the end, on the cross, um, when he says, "It it has been completed, is one of the ways to translate mm-hmm. that. Um, which is since his work has been completed. And so this friar, right, he's a Franciscan. He needs to complete his work. And above all, that means to make sure people know what happened. Um, and for him, of course, he can't outrun it. Right. Because he doesn't know how, right? You can't sort of outrun this. But he wants to make sure if, if people are left to continue the work of sort of creation and so on, um, they will know what happened. But it's, it's become this sort of really famous, iconic passage for obvious reasons. Um, and it does explain a little bit some of the reactions that happened. So there are apocalyptic movements. Mm-hmm. Um, the sort of millenarianism, right? It's always it's not just under the surface of Christianity anyway. like Frequently. Sort of from the beginning. Yes. Well, of course. The idea that Jesus would come back, and originally that was assumed to be soon, and then it turns right. out not to be soon. But um, but there is that sense, of course, even though it's not a sort of new millennium, that this might be the end of the world. Like, maybe we counted wrong. We don't know. Yes. Uh, and then, in that case, um, there become rumors of sort of the Antichrist. You know, is he a young, beautiful boy of ten living in Rome? So some of those rumors absolutely show up. There are then also the 
interesting movement. So the flagellants. Here we go. Um, they, of course, are a lay movement. This is really important. Because lay means not part of the clergy, not part of the clerical system. Mm-hmm. So it's a lay movement um, of people. Famously flagellation, the idea of whipping yourself for penance, is one of the things the church did okay. However, the flagellants as a lay movement very, very quickly become seen as heretical. Um, on October 20th, 1349, Pope Clement VI issues a bull declaring the flagellants heretical. Um, in Thuringia, which is now Germany, um, and includes like the town of Weimar and stuff, uh, the movement actually survives for about a century. They have other things to worry about. They don't end up stamping it out as quickly. Um, but sort of throughout other parts of Europe, less so in England, where they're kind of interested in the movement, but it, it doesn't bother them as much necessarily. But throughout sort of continental Europe, the Brabant and sort of areas, Hungary, Germany, it does become a sort of large lay movement People, of course, the idea of processing with a liturgy or something similar, and the idea of whipping yourself, and that you are taking on the penance of the world, essentially, right? You are doing what Christ did when he carried his cross mm-hmm. and taking on the sins of the world, so that you, what you are doing for penance should cleanse the world. The reason, presumably, they become declared heretical, there's a lot of sort of conjecture. Various reasons were given. Richard Kiekeffer has a good article about it. But the idea was essentially that because it's a lay movement, it ends up really being also kind of anti-clerical movement. One of the things that happens when the world starts to collapse, there are questions about economics, that after the plague, in a lot of places, laborers could suddenly get better wages and landlords had trouble paying all their rents. And yet, you know, the rulers tended to want to collect taxes at the same levels that they always had. So there are issues. Not all places, though, suffered in quite the same way. So there are a lot of questions about how the plague sort of affected the economy. But certainly, people in charge were worried about things like revolt or what might happen. The clergy were worried. They couldn't necessarily stop it. What if your mass or your procession or your pilgrimage didn't work? Mm -hmm. One of the issues with lay movements is the danger that they start to see the clergy as irrelevant. Right. And the flagellants did start to sort of hear each other's confessions, their ideas, they're performing miracles. So essentially, they saw this as an opportunity initially very much to sort of behave um, in a Christ-like fashion, try to help cleanse the world and end the plague. But also, of course, if they were successful, it would mean that they didn't need the clergy. So this is this is dangerous the same way that Protestantism was dangerous, right? In that mm-hmm. you have this idea suddenly that, like, I don't need a priest. Yes. Um, I can talk directly to God myself. Yeah, there are lots and lots and lots of proto-Protestant heresies. And I'm sure we'll talk about them in an episode because they're fantastic. This is honestly isn't usually seen as that because, of course, lay movements are always kind of a danger to Catholicism. And there are lots of them. And they remain firmly Catholic but nonetheless sometimes do end up heretical. Mm -hmm. And so that sort of is what happens to the flagellants. But they're really interesting because, of course, they are on the extreme end of what you might do as part of a procession or a pilgrimage, right? It's very theatrical. And also that sort of becomes interesting in itself because that level of show, right, that sort of level of spectacle is something that itself can be seen as dangerous. Among the causes that people are worried about, like the particular sins, a lot of people sort of just think generally people are being sinful, but some people 
pick out specific sins. In England, one of the writers, pretty sure it's Henry Knighton, says this is all down to a tournament. The previous year, there had been a lot of tournaments, uh, which, of course, right, jousting, all this stuff, which was considered not actually heroic <laughs> frequently, but more, I don't know, the sort of martial or warlike equivalent of a strip club, I guess we could say. Okay. <laughs> and so he thinks that this is, right, they're body women and people are sleeping around and showing off and fighting with each other and drinking, you know. Um, so he thinks that England's being punished for the tournaments. One of the other big things that shows up is fashion, which I love. Ooh. So, for example, this is in the Westminster Chronicle, also England, saying that people have abandoned the old, decent style of long, full garments for clothes which are short, tight, impractical, slashed, every part laced, strapped, or buttoned up, with the sleeves of the gowns and the tippets of the hoods hanging down to absurd, absurd lengths. Right. Which is just a reminder that the dress code has been a problem for probably thousands of years. You know, what people say about teenagers in every generation. Right. Their clothes are too tight and too short and too this. Yes. You know, always. Hundreds of years people have been doing this. They blame the plague on it, possibly. But it also reminds me there's this great line at the end. Let's see. Oh, yeah. So women specifically... Uh, wearing clothes that were so tight that they wore a fox tail hanging down inside their skirts at the back to hide their arses. <laughs> Which is fantastic. So, this is also a sort of comment that brings us back to Mankind, which we mentioned last time, the play, the morality play. There's a whole section that makes fun of Mankind, the central character. He gets talked into taking his nice practical coat that keeps him warm, you know, and all these things. And the little devils in the play talk him into just cutting it, cutting it, cutting it till it's incredibly fashionable, but of course doesn't hide his butt and presumably is super cold. <laughs> so that is a commentary there as well. So that's it's a famous thing about fashion, obviously. People have always said the same thing about fashion, and they always will. Um, so that's... Right, another one of those things. Um, the more dangerous things that you mentioned, I think we'll probably talk about more in a future episode, which is why I figure we'll just put them in at the end here. Um, but I mentioned the basilisk. So the idea that, for example, you could use something like dried basilisk blood to poison wells. Hmm. Leprosy. In the 13, or 13, 2021, um, there had been this sort of leper plot, supposedly, where lepers were going to poison wells with leprosy, springs, rivers, water sources, you know, and give everyone leprosy, mm -hmm. right? A different plague. And eventually this plot sort of turns against the Jews as well. The idea is that Jews are somehow also part of this, and there is this huge, there are pogroms and so on. So fast forward, right, 25 years or so, 26 years to 1347-48, the plague comes along, and... One of the things that does happen is there start to be rumors that in certain places, Jewish populations have been accused of poisoning wells. So there are absolutely pogroms. But it's not entirely clear. This is something that some of my friends who work on this have talked about. It's not entirely clear, first of all, that this was inevitable. Because people don't seem to connect it to the event of even sort of 26 years before. Mm -hmm. They don't seem to be saying, you know, we did that last time, we thought they might have been part of this, so this time they are too. That doesn't seem to be what happens. And it actually might have something to do also with the economics of the situation. So as I said, um, one of the things, of course, you get sort of economic, a little bit of economic collapse, and then laborers can sort of ask for better wages because there aren't there are so many people to work. 
And usually when royalty needed money or they were collecting taxes, one of the things they might do was have the Jewish moneylenders call in their debts. And then, of course, that made Jews very unpopular and frequently did cause um, violence. And that in this case, that that may have been, of course, a cause for violence because you have um, the plague, right? And then the idea of calling in debts after that, that that may have sparked violence. But there are also clear cases where there are rumors that this is happening and people in other locations hear that it's happening, but don't necessarily believe that the Jews were at all involved. And one of the interesting things, despite the widespread violence that does happen, is that a lot of people are nonetheless convinced that the plague is so terrible and widespread that it can't possibly have been the sort of result of any one group of people doing something like that. Mm -hmm. And so then there are actually injunctions um, against killing Jews. The Pope sort of issues (laughs) one, right? So this does happen. I mean, there's a recognition that this is not the time. But actually, the flagellants later, one of the things they're accused of in the sort of justification of calling them heretical is inciting violence against Jews. But it's not clear, actually, that they did or if that was the case So there's a lot of interesting things that happen. And of course, once again, the violence against the Jews is partly the fact that they're always seen kind of as foreigners, Mm -hmm. right? And so people who are travelers to a city, Henry Suso, who's a sort of famous mystic religious figure, he writes an account of he's traveling, he's out traveling with someone else, a companion, a companion he doesn't think a lot of, and they end up in a city and his companion kind of gets in trouble and ends up getting accused of well poisoning. And they basically have to get out of there. And it's clearly a commentary on how travelers are seen and how sort of suspicious it is that someone would show up suddenly during a time like this. Why are they traveling around, you know? So that sense, right, also Jews of foreigners, of course, is always part of it. But anyhow, I figure a lot of that we'll probably get into in a separate section where we talk more about sort of Judaism um, and Jewish-Christian relations in the Middle Ages. But that's definitely a thing that comes up, so it's worth mentioning. Mm -hmm. We should tack it on to the Easter discussion. When we talk about yes. Easter, we can talk about Passover and Judaism and matzah blood. Yes, yes. But that definitely, right, that is a sense of violence that comes up. And then the final thing, I figure art is something we'll talk more about, art literature. But we mentioned Boccaccio, we mentioned Chaucer, I think. Mm-hmm. The partner's tale famously, death is stalking the land. It's clearly the plague. Um, but these sort of idiot men in this tavern decide they're going to go out and confront death for, like, taking their friends. Great story. <laughs> the poem of the three living and the three dead had been around already, but became incredibly popular after the plague. And that's where three noblemen out hunting run into themselves Ooh. as rotting corpses. Yes, and they are told, um, as you are, so once were we. Mm. And as we three are, so you shall be. Um, And that's, of course, you know, obviously a comment on mortality. And something we might actually talk about, I think, also separately, sort of things like dying, you know, the art of dying well, good death. Um, I think there's a a podcast or something, the, the good death. Yeah. Art takes a little bit longer to catch up, which is interesting. So things like mm-hmm. the dance of death, right? The dance macabre is really is something that comes along a bit later visually. But there are some visual images that are already around that get used and then certainly show up again sort of in the 1400s, very clearly is with links to the plague. Um, two of the big ones, the most famous mm-hmm. probably St. Sebastian is the patron saint 
of plague because of the idea that arrows, this goes all the way back to Apollo in the Iliad, right? Um, that somehow shooting arrows is how plague arrives. Apollo's the god of medicine, right? But he hmm. can give it and he can cure it. And so somehow this idea of arrows getting shot as plague. So it's like the invisible bullets yes. thing in an earlier era. Yeah. Um, and it is this, it is a brilliant metaphor because in some ways it does. It shows up out of nowhere. You don't know how it got there, right? It is invisible, so it might as well be the sort of arrows of a god. But P- Sebastian gets shot full of arrows but then survives and then gets beaten to death. So the fact that he survived the arrows, right, so symbolically survived the plague <laughs> makes him the patron saint of yeah. plague. And then Mary, of course, the virgin, who's a protector figure always, um, but specifically her cloak. And there are pictures later, there are a lot of imagery of sort of Mary holding out her cloak, and there are all these people sort of under it. And her cloak is seen as this protection against the plague. Right, she's sort of our mother and she protects us. Mm -hmm. So that's another great image that comes out of it. Um, And as a figure in general, Mary is a very important figure. Also, sort of in the fight, the fight against the plague. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Well, so uh, I'm going to summarize what we learned today. Let's see. The plague hit Europe. Well, people usually think of it as hitting during the Middle Ages in the 1348-ish. But we also have right at the beginning of the Middle Ages in the Mediterranean, the Justinian plague around 500s killed a lot of people. Bullet two, I guess I would go with 50 to 60% death rate, but we think that uh, medieval scientists were actually pretty good at describing what what went on and the symptoms that they were seeing, and they had some great scientific theories as to what might be going on. And finally, there were a lot of reactions ranging from the increased interaction between different cultural religious groups to the increased persecution of different groups. So it really ran a whole gamut. Great. I've learned a lot. Yay. <laughs> All right. So I think this is a time where we, uh, we say bye. And uh, until next time. Yes. Until next time. And hopefully, you know, there's some nice parallels to today. Yes. In so many ways. Right? Um, Modern racism against Asian Americans. I mean, we repeat things over and over. It's true. And it's sort of fascinating. The spread, you know, the ships waiting in the harbor. Things we don't think we'd see again. Here we are all in quarantine. Um, (laughs) Yes. Like Shakespeare and Newton and everybody else. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm still working on the sign-off. Keep it medieval? I don't know. Maybe don't keep it medieval. Ooh, that's a good one. <laughs> yes. Okay. We want to encourage it. Yes. Let's go with that one. All right. Keep it medieval. Bye. Bye. Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons Attributional Non-Commercial License version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? 
For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com.